Well, thank you to the choir and orchestra. That's so beautiful. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation chapter 4 as we get into God's Word together. This is the final uh, message in our series on Revelation, but a great introduction of where we're going next, which is some, uh, we'll be spending some time in the Psalms in our next little series. So in chapters two and three of Revelation, uh, John is busy writing down what Jesus tells him to communicate to the churches. And it's almost as if John is out of the story. But John reasserts himself back into the story with the words at the beginning that we have here, after this I looked. So John is right back in there. And this chapter is teaching us, as I hope always you do, you focus on the words that we sing. And man, we have sung this morning what we are talking about, uh, and that is worship. This chapter has a lot to teach us about that. You know, imagine uh, celebrating a birthday for your child, and you buy a cake, and you invite friends, and you give them presents, and... And now imagine discussing it afterwards with your spouse. And you say, uh, your spouse asks, hey, what'd you think about the party? And you say, you know what? I I don't know, I didn't really get that much out of it. Um, Didn't impact me. It didn't feed me for where I'm at right now. Um, I didn't get any presents. Uh, We sang happy birthday, but on a guitar? I'd rather hear it on the piano. I don't know. You know, but don't we say these things sometimes about worship? You know, we, it's, it's, it's all about, and I'm guilty of it too, it's all about us, what, what I like, what I want. Uh, and you have this on your outline at the very top. God alone is worthy of all worship and honor and praise because of who he is and what he's done. God alone is worthy. You know, Revelation is primarily, I don't believe, a book about the future, but a book about worship. We read Revelation because we're all concerned about how's this going to happen? When's this going to take place? But John's concern is not what our concerns are. He's concerned about who is this about and why is he doing what he's doing? There really is a reality of, of, of what's going on right now. That is the reality. Heaven is there. Jesus is there. This is what we're reading about is current right now. It's not sometime in the future. Have you ever thought at a, at a point, a different time, maybe uh, in a worship service that you feel like you've just tasted a little bit of heaven? And I felt like that this morning with the orchestra playing, the choir singing, you, you're the choir, we're all the choir, singing before the Lord. It is a taste of heaven. I think there's something about gathering together for corporate worship, where there's a, a, our cumulative love for Jesus comes together and we focus our attention on him, and it's a wonderful thing, it's a great thing. Well, let's read our passage, Revelation, we'll read the entire chapter. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me 
like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne were uh, in front of the throne there was there was what looked like a sea of glass clear as crystal in the center around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and in back the first living creature was like a lion the second was like an ox the third had a face like a man the fourth was like a flying eagle Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. This is God's word. This passage, it's obviously about worship. And we're to do that. We're to give all glory and praise and honor to God. Uh, Not just on Sunday mornings, but when we are doing our own personal Bible reading, when we're doing our own prayer. But also with every interaction we have with another person, believer. An unbeliever, every time you choose obedience to God over disobedience, that is an act of worship. That our lives are to be lived as a worship, a praise before God. Moses writes in Deuteronomy that our God is a consuming fire. In Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews says that it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Nobody is getting away with anything. Some people might think they are here, but nobody is getting away with anything before God. It was John Calvin who in his lecture on prayer and his institutes which were written for new believers who said every human being has to do business with God. This is the God who is praised as the king of creation and he is glorious and he is eternal, and he is holy, and he alone is worthy of our praise. 
And so he gives us these reasons. In Revelation 4, we see God the Father in his throne room in heaven, and John gives us the reasons why we should live for the glory and the praise of God. And the first reason that we're to live for his glory and his praise is that, number one on your outline, that God is the king over all. God is the king over all. And this is true. He is the king over all. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we've had kind of a, a view from the earth, so to speak, as Jesus walked among the churches and encouraged them and rebuked them. And now the scene shifts to heaven, giving us this view from above, where we get to see things from God's point of view. And the first thing that we see here under number one is that we praise God because his plans are perfect. His plans are perfect. In this chapter and throughout the book of Revelation, there's some kind of crazy imagery, right? It's amazing, and a lot of it, some, a lot of it will not be interpreted for us. We wonder, what, what does that mean? And so just a word of advice for us today, and as you, anytime you open the book of Revelation, to not be frustrated about being unable to understand everything that's there. Just worship God for it. Praise him that he is in control, that this is beyond our finite minds to understand all that God is doing. A lot of times something will be mentioned and, and we think, what in the world does that mean? What could that represent? Well, you know, I have a commentary on Revelation that's like a parallel Bible. It has four columns and each column is a different theological viewpoint of most or many of the of of the key verses in Revelation. And so there's not one view that is the view, and, and maybe the fifth view, one that's not even there, will be what happens. I don't know, but there are a lot of different questions that we'll have as we read through it. So in verse one it says, after that I looked and, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had, heard, I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet. Like a trumpet, you've got that word, the word like, 46 times in Revelation. Uh, again, not all of them are going to be interpreted. When we read this imagery, the best thing you can do is stand back in awe and just say, wow, God, I don't get this, but I'm sure glad you do. I'm sure glad you understand what's going on. Revelation is, it, it, I, I really do believe that it's, it's a book of worship, and that's what John wants us to do especially here in chapter four. Chapter five continues, but especially in chapter four. Worshiping God because he is in control. He is a sovereign God. So when it says like a trumpet here, he does interpret, that's Jesus' voice. And Jesus says to him, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. But again, we're not gonna understand it all, but we don't have to understand it all. Some of you will know the name uh, Corey Ten Boom. She was, uh, and her family saved the lives of many Jews during World War II by hiding them in their home. They had different hiding places, the name of her book. And um, she ended up, and her family ended up going to a concentration camp uh, for doing that. And she said, there is no panic in heaven. God has no problems, only plans. I love that. And then look at verses two and three. And in these verses, we're told to praise God, and this is on your outline, because of who he is. 
Look at verse two. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. So John's in the presence of God as he's taken there in this revelation, this vision that he has. And, at, at, and he says that uh, at, at once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. John is in the presence of God. Maybe this is a little bit like the third heaven that the apostle Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. John doesn't attempt to describe the one sitting on the throne. He can only tell us what this person is like. And he says in verse three, the one who sat there had the appearance of, it was appearance of like, like jasper and ruby, a rainbow, like a rainbow that shone like an emerald and circled the throne. And that makes sense because of what Paul said to Timothy. Paul said, this is the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. And then later in Timothy, Paul says that, the, this is a, that God dwells in unapproachable light and no one has seen or can see him. And so in our own sinfulness, no one can look at God and live. But John does his best here in this revelation and he sees a throne and he mentions the word throne 40 times in this book. And the word throne is only mentioned another 13 times throughout the entire rest of the New Testament. And we do have some notable mentions of God's throne in the Old Testament that I think are worth reminding ourselves about. In Isaiah chapter six, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne. And then in, in Psalm 47, God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. And maybe the best way to sum this up is that God is beyond description. He is, he is beyond our minds. Our finite minds will never be able to comprehend an infinite God. But we know he's awesome. We know he's spectacular. We know that he's, he's magnificent. There is no God like our God. That's why we praise him. And then in verses four and five, we praise him next because of his power. We praise him because of his power. In verse four, we see the privilege God gives us to be in his presence. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. This is an example of different interpretations that can exist. Um, I found no fewer than six different ideas of who these elders are. We don't know. God knows. You know, maybe that's the best theological answer you can give. I don't know. Verse five is, is, um, is one of those Old Testament allusions. I don't know if you remember, but we said at the beginning that more than any other New Testament book, Revelation has more allusions and quotations from the Old Testament than any other New Testament book, 245. There are, the next closest is Hebrews with 85. So nearly triple, uh, around triple the number that are in Hebrews. But verse five is one of those Old Testament allusions. And in Exodus 19, God is reminding the children of Israel that he has spoken through Moses. And so Exodus 19, verse 16 says, on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. 
Sound familiar? It's almost like John had this open. It's like this was fresh in his mind as, as he's describing what he's seeing in heaven. And this is what John is pointing us to, God's awesome power and God's awesome strength. Has there been a time in your life when you have experienced the power of God? Maybe it was in a conversation you had and and you knew that God was nudging you to talk to this person about the Lord and, and you took the risk and it was really awkward and really uncomfortable, but you saw God come through and you experienced there the power of God. Maybe it was a time that you, you definitely got out of your comfort zone talking to, to someone about something else, but, or maybe it was a time you said no to a temptation, and you know that it was the power of God that allowed you to do that. And then in front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing, and these are seven, the seven spirits of God. And this is the spirit who, is, who convicts us of sin and who is perfect, that's the number seven. He convicts us, he changes our hearts. Titus 3.5 tells us that, that the intimate and the important role that the Holy Spirit plays in our salvation. It says this, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. And this is the same Holy Spirit that is blazing before God's throne in verse five. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing and these are the seven spirits of God. It's like in Isaiah 11, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So God is perfect in his person. He's perfect in his power. The spirit is perfect. And then Paul tells us that that Christ's return should encourage us. You know, I I, I don't know that we focus enough on, on being encouraged by Christ's return. And maybe, I, I think it's because we're so comfortable here. We have so much freedom here. You know, if you want to be encouraged encouraged at, at our brothers and sisters around the world who go through a lot of persecution, uh, you can find the information online. Open Doors is a place that follows and, and tries to be an, an, an encouragement to those who are under persecution. And in the last 12 months, they have these statistics that 5,898 Christians in the last 12 months around the world were killed for their faith. I don't know if I've heard of anyone here that has. 5,110 church buildings and other Christian buildings were attacked around the world. 4,765 believers were detained without trial and were either arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. You talk to them about the hope of Jesus coming back, they live for that hope. It's what keeps them going. And then it says this on the website, these numbers are heartbreaking. 
And yet they do not tell the whole story. James 1 says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. That joy is what we see when we hear and work with Christians all over the world who suffer because they serve Jesus. So we need to remember that even here with all of our freedoms, God cares for us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us, no matter what you're going through in your life. What a vision, what a king we have. And we see him here on his throne. And then the second reason that we're to live for the glory and the praise of God is because God's holy, his nature is holy. John continues to unfold the throne room vision given to him by Jesus. And what we now see is, 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 is it's like the whole chapter, it's like much of the imagery we see. It's, it's magnificent and it's strange to our ears to hear. It's like we're thinking of watching some scientific sci-fi movie or something. Uh, And so it says in verse six, also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal, surrounding God's throne. It's a sea of glass. And this just adds to the absolute beauty that is there. And we can only guess at what it might represent. Maybe it's focusing us on the purity of God, on the holiness of God, Uh, This is the sea of glass. This is what one commentator said. May pick up on the fact like uh, that the sea is usually negative imagery in scripture as a place that's wild and untamed. Think of Jonah. Uh, But here it it has clearly been tamed, appearing like glass, clear as crystal. And then next, his holiness is shown by his creation. The point here is that this is a, there's a universal need to worship God. And even the ocean, even, even that reflects him. Everything is to worship God. We're to submit to his gracious, gracious love and his, his, his creative power. And all of creation points us to him. That's what we read in Psalm 19. The psalmist says the heavens are telling the glory of the glory of God. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. Their voice goes forth to the ends of the earth. And so the canyons and the oceans and the mountains and the stars are all doing what they were created to do. And that is to point us to God. They are, in a sense, submitting and declaring the glory of God because they're doing what they were created to do. In that sense, they're worshiping. It's like the psalmist and John are asking, are are you being everything you were created to be? Are you worshiping God with all your being? Are you submitting your life to the greatness of the creator? God designed us to worship him. Are we doing that? If we don't worship him, we're gonna worship something. We were made to worship. Here's an example. Um, Football season is upon us. And we all know a football fanatic or two, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, there's nothing, if if that's, however, 
I know before I was a Christian, the focus of my life was sports. It was all about sports. Uh, everything was, had way too much importance for me in my life if it was related to sports. But if, 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 that's, if there's nothing else, they listen to podcasts about football. They, they study the statistics. They get ready for draft day because they're probably playing fantasy football. Uh, they talk about it. And again, I'm not condemning that. I don't think it's wrong. But if that's the only focus of your life, it's wrong. Then on Sunday, they spend a lot of time and effort to actually get into the presence of the object of their adoration, to, to watch a football game on television. And when the object of their love is presented to their senses, their whole posture changes. You know, we say, well, you know, we don't want to raise hands, but I see a lot of hands being raised in the stadium. You know, they're, they're raising their hands all the time. Why can't we raise our hands? I mean, we, we, we shouldn't be forced to. We should have the freedom to if we want or have the freedom to not do it if we don't want. But they praise their team. They shout at the television screen, and even if the team obviously can't hear them, and, and you can see it on their face. It, it's like we try to soothe ourselves like our culture does, the world does, with all these placebos. What is it for you? Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's drugs, maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's an emotional affair. Maybe it's an affair. Maybe it's scrolling through social media. What is it that takes you away from worshiping God? That's what John's getting at here. Make, live for what you were created to be. And that is to live for the glory and praise of God. We see if we can try to control things. We, we want to have everything under our control. And we try to numb ourselves because we are pathetic at running our own lives. You see examples of it. You all know examples of it. There's this universal need for worship. And this is what John realizes as he sees the reality of heaven here right now. So do you recognize worship in your life? What moves you to tears? What grabs you by the throat, so to speak? Those are not rational things. Those are things we worship. John says, this is why you were created. This is what should guide your life. Sometimes it's not easy to figure out what we really worship. And maybe you worship your need to be in control. Maybe that's what I think people who don't believe in the supernatural, what they do. This isn't an exact quote, but I, this is, I think, what C.S. Lewis is saying when he says, you're cowards. You're half-hearted creatures. You don't want to surrender. You don't want to glorify anything. You're, you're down in the mud playing with your toy trucks, namely sex and ambition and money, when Infinite joy is offered to you. And what Lewis is saying is, have the guts, have the courage to surrender yourself to something greater than you. Throughout God's word, God is continually saying, praise me, worship me. Why is God saying that? He doesn't need our praise. 
We need his prayer. We need to praise him. That's what we need. We need to focus our lives on him and worship him. Do we do it perfectly? No, we're human. We sin, but we're striving all the time for that. And we tend to play the game of church. And I'm not, I mean, trust me, we're, we're all struggling. You know, we're all hypocrites. We're trying to do it right. We don't always get it right. But I, I mean, this, the words to the song, I was particularly keen to them because of what I'm talking about this morning. But I, I, hope, I hope all of you were. They were so powerful. And the words that we will sing are powerful words. But it's so easy, and I know this because I've been a Christian long enough that we get, we get caught up in, in, because we know the words, we can look around and, and think, oh man, th- so our minds start wondering. Wow, what am I going to have for lunch? I'm starting to get hungry. Or, uh, you know, what is this person thinking? Why, why didn't they greet me this morning? Or did I turn the lights off in my car? I don't remember if I did or not. Or at home? Or did I turn the iron off? Whatever. But it's not worship. We, it's so easy, and we, we all need to fight against it, and I believe we do, but fight against just playing a church game. That's not why we're here. We're here to worship God. And when we generally, genuinely praise him, our lives are filled with joy. And so his holiness is shown by his creation, and then the next thing is holiness is sung by his creation or said by his creation. That's what's next. They never stop saying, but we sing it. While the identity of all these people around the throne may not be clear, what is clear is what they're doing. And they're praising God. They're worshiping. And they never stop worshiping. Look at verse eight. Day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And the title, Lord God Almighty, is used 10 times in the New Testament, and nine of those times are in the book of Revelation. The focus is worship. And because this is who God is, he's eternal, he is all-powerful, those who worship him acknowledge that, that their existence and being is completely dependent on the one who sits on his throne in heaven. That's why there's not one thing here for us on earth that we have to fear. What is it that you fear? If you're worshiping God, forget the fear. There's nothing to fear. And we get to join them in worship. And what gets in the way of this is we try to set up our our pathetic little kingdoms. Against God's kingdom? Are you kidding me? And we have this attitude that says, you know, I don't care what God says about sex in the Bible or sexuality. I'm going to believe what I want to believe. I don't care what God says about money in the Bible. I'm just going to spend my money the way I want to. I'm never going to make it a a spiritual decision. I'm never going to pray about how I spend my money. A relationship with a non-Christian that leads to marriage? I don't care what God says about it. I love this person. How can he deny me love? And we go on and on in our minds and we're, we're creating our own little kingdom. How's that going for you? It's like we have a little tykes 
uh, chair that we've set up, and this is our throne. And don't mess with my throne. And, and God in all of his glory would make that all disappear in a, in a second if he wanted. God's creatures continually and forever are to tell of his holiness. And then finally, the third reason that we're to live for the glory and the praise of God is that God is to be praised because of all that he has created. We show him that we believe that he's worthy of our worship. Look at verse nine. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And then look at this next phrase. Underline it in your Bible, highlight it. They lay their crowns before the throne. Wow. We gladly return in worship what our God has given us. We readily, and this is on your outline, acknowledge that all we have was first given to us by him. So how do they worship? They fall down. They cast their crowns before the throne. They joyfully give it back to God. They acknowledge that all they have came from him first, so they're glad to give it back to him. They, they want to. They didn't earn it. Nothing we have uh, is given to, is, is, is from us. It's all from God. And nothing they have would they hold back from the one on the throne who was so awesome and holy. That's what John wants us to see here. And that raises the question for all of us, what am I withholding from God? Am I withholding my gifts, my spiritual gifts? Am I withholding my, my talents? Or am I using those for the, for the building up of the kingdom of God? Am I withholding my, my money? Am I withholding my, my family? Am I withholding my time? Am I withholding my, my mind, my service? What am I withholding from God? We give it all back to him. We make it all available to him. And it's when we make our crowns, our gifts and our talents available to him that we can see that he's worthy of that. that, that that's, that's we see, it's like worship where, where he's, he's so valuable to us. One commentator said this, we, we miss it when our focus anytime becomes horizontal, riveted on people or things, rather than vertical, centered on God and God alone. And we take it all, we give it back to him. Think about it this way, when we give it back to him, he, what he's blessed us with, in a sense, we lose control. Because he's in control. You don't belong to yourself when you're worshiping something else. I've, I've worked with enough people who are alcoholics to know that they don't necessarily want to drink. They, they feel like they have to. Their lives, they've lost control to alcohol. You know that. You've, you've seen that, I know, in your lives. It's the same thing with pornography or gambling. Whatever it is, we lose control to what we worship. So have you lost control to God? 
It means that God should be our number one priority and the way we, we, we submit to him, the way we conduct ourselves in terms of our career. We submit to him in terms of the way we carry on relationships with other believers, with other unbelievers, the way we speak to others, the way we form our opinions, our minds. Has that happened to you that you've lost control to God and allowed him to direct your thoughts? I need to bring my thinking is not in line with scripture. And so I read scripture and wow, I need to bring my, my thinking, my opinions in line with God's word. Have you seen this radical kind of reorientation in your life? What I, what I read from John in, in, in Revelation chapter four is don't dabble in worship. Don't make it a game. You know, people who come to worship service twice a year, and that's all they ever want to come, are dabbling. But we have to be careful because we can never miss a Sunday and be dabbling. Where's our mind? Where's our heart? God says you worship me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. We don't want that to be said of us. You know, I, I, I do know that there are many here who worship in spirit and in truth. They worship with all their hearts. I think that's all of us. I, I want that to be all of us. I want that to be me. But do you submit to him everything that you can think of in your life? And our passage ends with this amazing hymn of praise to God as creator in verse 11. You are worthy, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. God willed it and creation happened. And creation continues only because God wills it. And you are still here today because God wills it. God still has a plan for you. He has, he has no problems. Remember Corey Tenboom? He just has plans. And if you're here, if you're alive, if you're breathing, God has plans for you. When those plans are over, you won't be breathing anymore. And this is why we praise God and live for his glory. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to live a life of praise and worship to you. We praise you that you are the God of creation. We see so many beautiful things around us, especially right here. Lord, may they just continually point us back to you. 
All the saints adore you, casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea. May that be said of us. May we live, Lord, to to cast down and give back to you all the things that you've given to us. May we make it all available to you and hold back nothing. Lord, maybe there's someone here today that has just been dabbling with you and they know it. And they know they need to go all in and have that kind of faith. And if that person is here, maybe they just respond to you in faith. Call on your name. Commit their lives to you. We love you, Father. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. And I can't think of a better way to end this with these words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.